All right, ladies, welcome. So it's uh, Tehillim time. There's 150 chapters. We try to do one or two a week. It's a project that we started uh, for the memory of the tzaddikit, Mrs. Lily Medde Ba'alea Shalom. Lily Le'ah Bat Virginia Ruach Hashem Tenihana Begin Eden. Amen. Our uh, curriculum today brings us to chapter 53. Nun Gimal. Let's read the chapter. Let's get a uh, just a basic understanding of it. <laughs> yeah, you do. And then uh, we'll try to make some some analysis on it. So the chapter reads like this: Lam al Mahalat Maskil David. A lot of words here that need definition. Lam is the conductor. To remember that David wrote these songs and then he would present them to the conductor of the Beit HaMikdash and they would play them. Mahalat is the name of an instrument. So he also told them how to play it. Maskil is a lesson from the word sechil. So all these chapters obviously, especially this one has a practical lesson. It's a maskil le David, lesson of David or moral of David. We say in the Moral of the story, so he has a maskil over here. What does he say? Amar naval belibo. So he talks about a naval. Anybody know what a naval is? Well, naval is a rasha. Some say that she brings down that the naval that he's talking about, although there's a long list of navals, he's specifically referring to Titus, Titus. If you remember the story when he destroyed the Beit HaMikdash Titus, Roman emperor, he went into the Kodesh Kodashim, to the Holy of Holies, and uh, I don't like to be too graphic, but the Gemara does say that he rolled out a Sefer Torah, and he went on the Sefer Torah with a, uh, what should we say, with a woman, and he did Avira in the Beit HaMikdash. The worst, uh, worst crime you could imagine. And then he saw from the, from the uh, Aron in front of him, blood coming out. Uh, and he thought in his mind that he actually killed, God forbid, he can't kill God, right? But that's what he said. He said, oh, look at that. He's, he's bleeding and I got him. So Amar Naval Belibo, this Naval, this low life, this degenerate, we call Titos. What does he say? In Elohim. There's no God. There's no God that's Monitoring the actions of men. So him and his army, they did the worst things. Meaning they did uh, 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 degenerate things, low things, corruptive things, like the thing that I just mentioned to you. Not only him, but all his army as well. There was not one of them that we could list that did something good. And then it says in the Pasuk, Elohim, God, Mishamayim Hishkif al Bene Adam. Now, even though God is in the heavens, but his Hashkaha, uh, that means his divine supervision, is on earth. This goes against what some people say in philosophy that God is in the heavens and he, he does not know what's going on on earth. That means he created the world and then he left the world. Azav Hashem David Amelech reminds us that we don't believe in that. We believe that although Elohim is Shamayim, that God is in the heavens, Hishkif al Bene Adam. 
he is mashkif, he is uh, looking, he's watching. He's looking amongst the people. Is there anybody that has a brain? Is anybody uh, seeking God out? <clears throat> and then the conclusion, whatever generation it's talking about, but it says, Kulo sag. You know what Borei Olam saw in the generation? He saw it's all sag. So sag comes from the Hebrew word sigim. Sigim is dregs. Dregs is like impurities. Uh, when you have a metal. So when you take out the impurities, that's called the sigim. You're left with the pure silver. So God was saying, Kulosag, I see all, all uh, a refuse. I see waste. I don't see any, any people that are of value. They're all collectively corrupt. There's nobody that's doing good. Not even one. Now on this pasuk over here, there's much to be said. I'd like to say so a few short on this. So let's begin what the great rabbi Likutei Muharan said. There was a rabbi called Rabbi Nachman from Breslov. You must have heard of him once before. And he talked about this pasuk. And he has a, a talk over here. And it's the 82nd talk in Likutei Muharan where he talks about Moshe Rabbeinu. And that Moshe Rabbeinu connected himself even to the lowest of Israel. And he sacrificed himself even for the lowest of the Jews. You remember, after the Jews worshipped the golden calf, Moshe Rabbeinu was the one that told God, Either forgive them or erase me from your book. Now who's he defending? He's defending sinners. And Moshe Rabbeinu was Moshe Nefesh. He's willing to sacrifice his whole career for who? For people that were on a, a low level. What does it mean, Vayakel Moshe? He gathered. That Moshe Rabbeinu would connect his soul, Vayakel, he would gather, he would collect his soul with all the souls of Israel. Now listen to these words. Even the lowest of the low. Even if I see a Jew that he's a sag Jew, he's bereft from any religiosity. He's empty. He doesn't have any vestige of Kiddushah in him. You still have to connect with him. Meaning, kulosag, even if you see a person that's kulosag, what is our responsibility towards the kulosag Jew? Yahdav. Yahdav means embrace him. Why should you embrace him? Why? Abdachman talks about this a lot. This Kiddushah, even in the lowest places. There's sparks of Kiddushah everywhere. And even the lowest of the Jew 
still has a, a, a certain flame, a certain light, a certain uh, 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 ner, a certain a certain radiance that's inside. It might be buried. And therefore he says that the tzaddikim, they never write off a Jew. The tzaddik, when he sees a Jew that's far away, he knows that if he could somehow penetrate his soul, he'll be able to expose the pilot light. Remember the old ovens? They used to have a, a pilot light. And as long as that light was lit, he could turn on the oven and it, once the pilot light goes out, that's it. Then you have to relight it again. It becomes a big, uh, big to-do. Every Jew has a pilot light inside him that's always lit. It doesn't mean that it's going to light up his whole soul. But it's there. The job of the tzaddik is to, to, to find it, to identify it, and then... That's incredible. And to identify it, and then to bring it out. So that's the way Rabbi Nachman learns the pasuk. Kulo sag... If you see somebody that's all sag, yahdav. Yahdav means combine yourself. And that's, uh, that's the midav Moshe Rabbeinu. There's another way of learning this pasuk. And that is the Ba'la Turim. The Ba'la Turim writes, I have it here. The Ba'la Turim writes, Kulo sag. You remember we learned in few weeks ago in the Perasha, we read how Yaakov and Esav were born. Uh, they were twins. Uh, they weren't identical twins, by no means. But they were twins in the same womb of Rivka Imenu. And when Rivka was struggling with the pregnancy, she went to Shem Ve'evet for advice. That was the rabbis of the time. And what did they tell her? Shene goyim bibitnech. You have two nations that are going to descend from your Womb. Shne Goyim. And of course the Goyim are Am Yisrael is one, that's Yaakov. And then Esav, which represents, let's say, the Romans. Now if you take the word Goyim, Gimal, Vav, I'm spelling it right. No, Gimal Yud Yud Mem. That's how he's going to spell it. Goyim. Gimal is three. Yud Yud is 20. That's 23. And Mem is 40. Goyim numerically equals 63. Now, you're going to say to yourself, what does Goyim and 63 have to do with it? So the Balatrim says something beautiful. He says, because if you look at the lives of Yaakov and Esav, you'll see that the number 63 is very, very significant. And therefore, Shem Ve'ebed were hinting, Shne Goyim, you're going to have two children, and the magic number of the, both of them is going to be 63. Gematria Goyim. What is it? So he said, how old was Yaakov Abinu when he received the blessings from his father? Which is, which is the turning point of the whole story. You want to take a guess? 63. How did you know that? Good guess. 63. We know that because he was uh, 63 when he got the blessings. Then he left because he had to run away. This week's parasha, or last week's parasha, he ran away. And he ran away to Shem Ve'evri. He parked himself in yeshiva for 14 years. So from 63 to 77, he was hiding in Shem Ve'evri. He went to Lavan's house at, 73, at 77. He worked for seven years. And he gets married to his first wife at 84. So that's how we know the math. So he was 63 when he gets the blessings. So therefore, 
his uh, turning point in his life is the number 63. And what does uh, Esav have to do with 63? So I'll explain it to you. When, the, uh, when they destroyed the Beta Mikdash, it was the Romans. So it says, when the Jewish people came into Eris Israel, they were able to oust out seven of the 70 nations. There's 70 nations in the world of Goyim. And God promised that when we go to Eris Israel, we're going to uproot seven of them. And they lived in Eris Israel. So after we conquered Eris Israel, how many nations were left? 63, because we ousted already seven. And therefore, Esav, when he came to destroy the Beit HaMikdash, he came with the power of all the 63 nations of the world. So therefore, his magic number also is what? 63. So therefore, that is hinted in this Pasuk over there. Kulo Sag. All of our history is uh, uh, hinged on Sag, on 63. Our history is the 63 of the age of Yaakov Abinu, and our history also of the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash by the 63 nations. I didn't know there were 63 nations that destroyed the Beit HaMikdash. I guess Rome was representing all of them. Where was the other seven? The other seven were gone. Now, if that's the case, let's read a little further in the text. So the text comes along and says, Halo the Pu'aliyavin are the people that act in a devious way. The people that do wickedness. They know. What do they know? Ukhli'ami. They're eating and devour my nation. Meaning they're eating the Jewish people. Akhlulechem. Like somebody who eats bread. Elohim lo They devour us. And they don't call out to God. But God says to them, Sham pahadu pahad. There's going to come a time when Borei Olam is going to take revenge against them. They're going to have a fear. What type of fear? Pahad lo haya pahad. Sham pahadu pahad. They're going to have a fear. Lo haya pahad. Like there was no fear ever before. Ki Elohim pizar atzmot chonach. God is going to scatter the bones of those that are going to try to settle on Jerusalem. Heveshota, God's going to humiliate them. Ki because God despises them. So although the Pasuk is referring to the Romans who destroyed the Beit HaMikdash, God promises in this chapter that their day will come. And when their day comes, there's going to be a pahad, a fear that they never had. The Guim are never afraid, but now they're going to be afraid. And there's going to be a fear that they never experienced before. And God is going to scatter them around, humiliate them. And then what's going to happen with us? We're praying, it's a prayer, that God should come from Zion, which is Jerusalem. And we should see the salvation of Israel. When God returns, which literally means when God brings the captive, the captives out of captivity, we're the captives. When God will take the captives out of captivity, now there's a lot of Jews that you don't know about. There's uh, a, a certain Jews that are exiled that we don't know where they are. It's the ten tribes. There's going to come a certain revelation when Mashiach comes. 
and all of a sudden millions of Jews are going to appear that were in some remote place called the Sambation River. We don't exactly how to get there. We don't even know how to locate it, but there's Jews there. We, we who are here in America, we represent only two of the ten tribes. The, most of the Jewish people are somewhere in hiding. Maybe it'll be the Chinese. I don't, I don't know who they are exactly. But that's going to be one revelation. There's also another group of Jews that are called Bnei Moshe. And they are also somewhere in the world. So God's going to bring all these Jews back. And at that point, Yagel Yaakov, Yaakov will rejoice. Yisrael and the nation will be, uh, will be happy. But there's a deeper explanation over here that I came to talk about uh, this morning. And this is where we're going to pause now and make our analysis. That's the chapter. If you want to review the chapter quickly, it's talking about the enemies that had no fear of God, that destroyed the Beit HaMikdash, that did all corrupt things, that had no concern about anything. And God basically is saying that they will come. And when their day comes, God's going to humiliate and destroy them. And at that day, God will bring all the captives back from wherever they are. Different uh, redemptions, because God's going to bring from all over the world the different Jews. That's why it's written in the plural, Yeshuot Yisrael, salvations of Israel. Very good. But there's a deeper explanation. This is the way we explain it now. When Adam and Ishon ate from the tree, on page one, so there was an explosion that took place, the Arizal talks about, where his soul exploded. Adam's soul was made up of hundreds of thousands of sparks of Kedusha. At the time of the sin, these sparks scattered throughout the whole world. And Mashiach cannot come until every spark is recovered and returned to its original place. So you're going to ask, first of all, how do you identify where these sparks are? How do you locate them? And then once you locate them, how do you recover them? Now I'll tell you what you don't do. You ever see those guys on the beach with the the Geiger counters looking for treasures? You don't use that. That's not going to work for this. It doesn't work for them either between me and you. But the point is, it's done in a, in a metaphysical way. The Arizal writes that had the Jews not gone into exile, let's say the Jews would have behaved properly and been obedient and would have remained in Eretz Yisrael, then the sparks that are all over the world would come to Eretz Yisrael by themselves, they would have been attracted like a magnet is attracted to the, other, to the other pole. Our good deeds in Israel would have drawn all the sparks to us, and we would, it would have been done in a very easy way. The sparks would come to us. But since we sinned, that program is off the table. Now we have to go to them. So what happens? Ask yourself a question. Why in history, at certain points, Goyim, nations of the world, are hospitable to the Jewish people? And they invite us to come live in their lands. 
All of a sudden they say, okay, you're welcome. And then at another point, they had enough of us and they kick us out. What's the, what's the switch that turns it on and then what happens when they turn it off? What, what, what changes? We've seen it in Spain. We saw it clearly in Europe. And it's before that as well in Babel. In all of the places we went, at a certain point we were accepted warmly, and then at another point they kicked us out like like uh, like, like dirt. What happens? So Adizal says something amazing. The nations of the world have a lot of these sparks in them, and they know that Bnei Yisrael is the holy nation. So kedusha attracts kedusha. So when they invite us in, it's because they feel a certain sameness to us. They feel a certain affinity to us because they have the sparks in them. And they know Bnei Yisrael is also holy. So therefore, they're attracted because similar things attract. And then what happens? When we come to Galut, we work, we study Torah, we do mitzvot, we give tzedakah, we do chesed. And what does that do? It takes the Kiddushah away from them. At a certain point, they're bereft. Their bank accounts are empty. Now what happens, we have all the Kiddushah and they're left without any Kiddushah so they have what's called Tum'ah. Kiddushah and Tum'ah don't get along with each other. At that point, they tell us, leave. Because now they don't feel the connection anymore because we did our work. So when the nations of the world invite us to their country, that's a signal what? There's business for us to do in this place. We need to recover the sparks. And once they turn on us, then you know already we're not the same anymore. We took everything, they're left with nothing, we're opposites. Tum'ah does not live simultaneously with Kedushah. They cannot tolerate us, therefore they tell us to leave. <clears throat> it happened throughout history. Take Babel for a second, Iraq. We lived in Babel for 70 years. When we left, you know what we left with? With Talmud Babli, with the Babylonian Talmud. We extracted it. There was a little more work, I guess, to be done in Babel. That's where the Benish High had to go there and a couple of great rabbis. But after that, it's over. There's nothing in Babel today. Iraq is, there's no Jews. After we make our business in certain locations of the world and we finish collecting what we collect, we don't go back. That's why the Torah writes that after the Jews left Egypt, we're really not allowed to go back and settle Egypt. I know they did. But according to the Torah law, you're really not supposed to go back. Why? There's, no, there's nothing for you to do there. When we left Egypt, it says, we left with great wealth. The great wealth didn't only mean the physical wealth, it meant the sparks of Kiddushah that was in that location. Even go to the old country in Syria. Our ancestors were there, they studied a lot of Torah, there was a flourishing community. Once they left, what happened to the country? It was bereft of Kiddushah. It fell into a, a perpetual uh, civil war. They're fighting with each other all day long. I wish both sides success. The point is, <clears throat> Spain is the same thing. Spain was the, the golden age. The Maimonides, all the great Sadiqim. And then what? They kicked us out, finished. Last one out, shut the lights. There's nothing there anymore. That means, as long as there was Kiddushah in the place, so they flourished, and there was prosperity. But the Jews have the mission in order to retrieve the last of the sparks. Now I'll tell you what the Arizal says. If you have a tolerance to hear a deep concept from the Arizal. The Arizal says that Sadiqim, they could look at your face 
And they can see everything about you. It's all on your forehead. It's all on your face. So the next time you go to a tzaddik, cover your head, cover your forehead. If you don't want them to read you, or you know, walk in like this, walk, put a bandana on your forehead, so they won't be able to see uh, you know, all, your, all your... Anyway, you don't have to worry. You're, you're righteous. But I, I know that for a fact. I've seen tzaddikim like this. I once went to a big tzaddik in, in uh, Eretz Israel, and I sat with him, and he said, what's your name? I said, Eliyahu bin Yosef. He wrote my name on a paper. He doesn't know me. I never met him before. He looks at my name. He says, oh, you have six kids. I thought that was a lucky guess. But he was right. He looked again. He said, three boys, three girls. Wow. It's another lucky guess. How would he know that? Just by looking at the name. And then he said, your wife could have more. At that point, I told him, you better call her. I'm not telling you. <laughs> but, but the point is, but the point is, there's Sadiqim that can see things. They can see things. So the Arizal writes that why did Yaakov Abinu spend so much time in Laban's house? You know, when, when Laban offered him Le'ah, Yaakov said, I'll work for seven years. Why would he offer seven years? That's a long time to, to work for anything. And then... When the hail comes, what does he say? Another seven years. And then he stayed an additional six years. Why is Yaakov spending so much time in this place? Because he saw in Lavan that there's what to do over here. And he was right. Because when he left, who did he take with him? He extracted Rachel, Le'ah, 12 tribes. All that Kiddushah was hiding in Lavan's house. So Yaakov Abinu said, it's a big job. It took him 20 years to... Now, these were not regular sparks. These were nuclear sparks. These are the imahot. These are the shebatim. But nonetheless, Yaakov Aminu understood that this is a big business to do over here. When he felt it was over, he left. Now, how did he know it was over? So if you look at the pasuk that we read in last week's parashah, I'm explaining it to according to the Arizal. I know it's a Tehidim class. I'm getting back to the Tehidim in a second. There's a reason why I'm telling you this. So it says, Yaakov wakes up one morning. We have a homage over here. Yeah. I'd like to read you the pasuk of the homage. You'll benefit better instead of me misquoting uh, it. So the pasuk says at the end of Vayetzeh like this. He's on the way out. So it says like this. Yaakov sees the face of Lavan. And behold, it didn't look the same way it looked the day before and the day before that. Now the simple explanation is, he saw that now Lavan was being more, uh, you know, there was animosity. He saw that the, his face means his attitude. But according to the Arizal, he says, no, 
Until that point when Yaakov looked at the face of Lavan, he saw some sparks. At that moment, when he woke up that morning, Yaakov looked at Lavan, he says, wow, his face doesn't look anything like it has ever looked like. Must be, I'm done. If you look at the next pasuk, It's time for you to leave. That means you've extracted everything that you need to do. <coughs> and that's exactly what we're doing also, by the way. The, uh, the reason why we're in America, and the reason why the Americans until this point are hospitable to us, is because that's part of the tikkun of the world. But Yolam says you need to be here in order to do your job. Now how are you going to know where to go and how to find the sparks? You're not going to have to know. God will direct you. Wherever man finds himself, it's because there's something to do in that spot. That's why we never say that a Jew is lost. You're never lost. Uh, Hashem will always guide your footsteps to be in a spot where you can make a tikkun. The Baal Shem Tov gave the following example. I'm just uh, paraphrasing it. There was a fellow that had a meeting in Chicago. He flies to Chicago, he comes into the meeting... Uh, the secretary comes in, yes, Mr. So-and-so will meet you in a few minutes. It's very good. In the meantime, would you like a coffee? He says, yes, please, thank you very much. He sits down, he says, Baruch Hashem, he sips the coffee. After he makes the beracha, the secretary comes in, I'm sorry, Mr. So-and-so, uh, Mr. Uh, the boss over here, he, he was called out in an emergency meeting, he can't meet you today. He can't meet you. I came from New York to Chicago, I flew the whole day over there, and uh, I, well, I can't believe it. Tell him that I'm here. And he can't meet you. You have to come back another time. He's, I don't believe it. I wasted the whole day. You brought me over here. He goes back to his rabbi. And he tells the rabbi the story. He says, tell me exactly how it happened. He says, I went there. The secretary came in. I was ready to meet. I had my presentation. He told me he's not going to go. No, no, you're missing a point. Tell me what happened exactly. He says, that's what happened. Did they serve you anything to drink? What do you care if they serve me to drink? Yeah, they have to serve me to drink. What did they serve? Coffee. What did you do? I made a shakol. You went to Chicago to make a shakol. The meeting was a ruse to get you there. There was a certain spark in that location that only your soul is able to fix. But how's God going to get you to that office in Chicago? He has to make a plan, a meeting. The meeting was a ruse. There was no meeting. There was never going to be a meeting. You did what exactly you're supposed to do. So wherever man finds himself, wherever you are on the planet... You're there by design. And that's why well, you'll find yourself in a remote place. Obviously, you're going to make berachot, you're going to pray, you're going to be tehillim, whatever normal people do that are religious. And at that point, that spot is going to be fixed. So, and that's what the chapter is saying here. Mi yitin misiyon. Last pasuk in the chapter. Pasuk Zion. Misiyon Yeshuot Yisrael. Beshuv Elohim shevut amo. When God is going to return all the captives. The captives that he's referring to over here is not only the Jewish captives. Shevut Amo means the spiritual captives of Nitzotzot Kedushah that are spread throughout the world. And at that point, once the last of them are collected, Yagel Yaakov Yismar Yisrael. So that means there's going to come a time, and it might not be such a bad thing, where this country is going to be inhospitable to us. And at that moment, you know that we're done. You think it's starting. Okay, starting. Very good. That means we're almost at the end of the game then. They only become inhospitable when it becomes 
disparate, where the Kiddushah is all by us and the Tum'ah is all by them. So we've been here for 200 years, we've been taking a lot. Synagogues we built, Mikvaot, we have Chesed, uh, we have Tamut Torah issue. So all that is involved in the extraction process. So once already we reach the end of that process, they tell us goodbye. The only difference between this exile than the next exile, than, than the previous exiles is, there's no exile after America. Rav Chaim Velazhin said from the Gaom Vilna, North America is the last stop on the train. Which means, Bavel was not the last stop. From Bavel we went to Spain. And from Spain we went to Europe. We were always moving. America is the last stop. There's no America and then we're going to Australia. And then we're going to go to uh, Zimbabwe. And that's it. It's going to come from America, Mashiach. So when you start to see uh, things looking like they're coming to an end, uh, you're seeing correctly. Because... Well, I think you're probably a little late on that for that, but nonetheless, yes, that, that, that would not be a, a, a bad idea at all. Anytime, it's, it's always, always a good idea. Now, that would be the interpretation according to that. Now, if you allow me to go to the next chapter. Yeah, it's your bonus. We're going to do two chapters today. Chapter 54. Now, you have to have a little introduction for chapter 54. <coughs> David writes all these Tehillim because he was in crisis at a certain period of his life. So he writes the Tehillim either to thank God for redeeming him. This chapter is no exception. He was running away from Shaul. Shaul was his father-in-law. Now, that shouldn't surprise you. But Shaul felt that, for whatever reason, that David was not loyal to him, or he was a jealousy. It's a complicated relationship, Shaul and David. <clears throat> Shaul didn't understand that David was not his nemesis. David was, was loyal to him, but it was inside of Shaul. And if he would chase him, and he would... And David was always on the run. And he needed to seek asylum one time. He needed protection. So he ran to a certain city. It was called the city of Zif. <clears throat> and the people that live in Zif are called the Zifim. Properly so. What do you want to call them? If they live in Zif, you're going to call them Zifim. You're not going to call them uh, Indians. Zif, Zifim. So he gets to Zif, and the Zifim tell him, we'll give you uh, protection. And then they turned on David, and they went to Shaul and told Shaul, David's hiding with us. And now Shaul was able to find uh, David, and David was in trouble, and he had to escape. So this is the story, Lam Naseyah, Binginot, Maskile David, another story of David. Beboha Zifim. When the Zifim came, these guys from Zif, Shaul, and they tell Shaul, Hello, David, Mr. Terimanu. David's with us. And David says, You turned on me. You told me that you're going to protect me. Now you go and you tell, uh, you tell Shaul. They were, what do you call it? They were turncoats. They were not loyal, to say the least. <clears throat> Elohim. So therefore, David calls out to God. Please, I'm calling out to you. I need a redemption. And in your strength that I trust in, please take revenge on my enemies. 
כי זרים קמו עליי. דוד המלך says, because, no, דלת, אלוהים, שמה תפילתי, God, answer my prayer, האזינה לאמרפי, listen to the words that come out of my mouth. There's a big hadush here. There's a difference between tefillati and imrefi. What does tefillah mean? Prayer. Beautiful. But what does it really mean? What's the root of the word tefillah? Tefil- By the way, there's another word that sounds like tefillah. It's called tefillin. Now, is there a connection between tefillah and tefillin? So you might say, yeah, we wear tefillin when we pray. One of the tribes has a a name that sounds like tefillah and tefillin. Naftali. So we try to find all different words that have a similar root, and then we have to try to find the commonality between all the words so we can understand its, its, its meaning. Now, when Le'ah named her son Naftali, she didn't call him tefillin, nor did she call him prayer. Naftali, in that sense, is that I now will be bound and connected to my husband. Because every time a lady has a child, she becomes connected to her husband. So therefore, you've, you've bound me, you've connected me. So now we know the word tefillah means to connect. So it's a connection. And tefillin, by the way, how do we, the men put on tefillin? They connect it, they bind it. They bind it to their bodies. So therefore, that's what the word tefillah, tefillin, naftali, a connection. Now when we pray with kavanah, we create a connection between us and God. Which is the greatest reward of prayer. Most people think the greatest reward of prayer is getting answered. No. Getting answered is a bonus. But for those that never felt connection with God, then to them getting answered is the main game. But those that have felt closeness to Hashem and connection, that's all they crave for. Whether they get answered or not, it, 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 if I could, I don't want to trivialize these, these things that I'm saying. But imagine a young couple that they find themselves and they're in love with each other. Forgive the graphic uh, words there. But when they're in love with each other, what do they say? We don't need anything. We don't need any, uh, they're not worried about money. About, we just have each other, that's it. And anything else that they get, the love is so strong that nothing else means anything to them. Understand? Not mashal. So in the, in, in, when Sadiqim pray to God, the most that they want to get out of the prayer is the love, the connection. And if they don't want anything. I just want your love, I want your connection, I want your affection, I want your closeness, Hashem. And Tifilah is able to do that. If you pray with Kabbalah, you might say to I never felt it. But if you start praying with a little more Kabbalah and understand the words better and pray a little drop slower, all of a sudden, one morning, you say, whoa, I felt a jolt. I felt a, I felt a certain connection. And once you feel it, that's all you're going to ever want. And if somebody comes and says, I pray and I pray and I pray, I don't get answered. That is an indication that they might not be feeling connection. Therefore, they're looking for another, you know, another fix. Now, that doesn't mean tefillah doesn't bring results. Don't get me wrong. Tefillah brings results. It does. But that is not the motivating factor always of somebody that's seeking love. 
If the, if the man tells this girl that's in love, I have nothing to provide you. I don't have any way to support. I don't care. I'm going with you. I love you. All I want is you. So you see, sometimes there's something more than uh, uh, what you're going to get. So tefillah is a connection. So David Amelich in this chapter says, Elohim Shema Tefillati. Hear my prayer. That's referring to when he prays with Kabbalah. But you have to remember, David was not always praying in shul. Sometimes he was praying on the run. How do you pray with Kabbalah when Shaul's chasing you? They want to kill you. You just got uh, 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 betrayed by Zifim. Your mind is so preoccupied with all your troubles. At that point, it's not called tefillah because you can't connect. You're too preoccupied. But we say the words anyway. That's called imrefi. That's called the words that come out of my mouth. In America, they'll call it lip service. You're just saying the words, but you don't even, you're not even thinking. God answers that too, by the way. That's the good news that I have to tell you today. Even when it's only imrefi, when it's just lip service, we say in the Amidah, Ki tefilat Oh, you answer the tefillah even when it's all coming from the mouth. And the heart is not there, and the brain is not there, and there's no kabbana, even though it's a tefillah that's 100% net peh. God says, I listen to that also. So, which is a good, which is good, thank God. <laughs> now, you might not get the benefit of connection. You might not ever get connection, which is, okay, our loss. But if you're looking for results, as if a person comes and says, Rabbi, I pray that I mean that, but I don't even know. Just pray. It doesn't matter. There's, there's value in that. So David Amelik says, li Then he goes on to say, Ki zarim kamo alai. Zarim is like strangers. That's the zifim. Uh, and they came along and they were moser on me. They ratted me out to Shaul. Strangers. People that are stronger than me came for my life. But you? No. They chase me because they don't have God in front of them, these people. If they had fear of God, these people, they might not treat me like they do. But I know God helps me. Therefore, I'm not afraid. Adonai God who is the master, I know he's going to support me, to save me from Shaul and his men. And God will return bad to those that tried to hurt me. In your truth of justice, destroy them. And at that point, God, when you... Uh, relieve me from my enemies. Bin dava is behalach. I will bring you a korban nedava. I will bring a sacrifice of thanks. shimcha Adonai kitov, and I will thank you in public, which is where we probably get the custom of seudat odaa. That after a person goes to a difficult time, the Bira says, and I promise you from now, bin dava is behalach. I will bring you a nedava korban, and odeh shimcha shim kitov. I will praise you. That is from you. Now, listen to the last Pasuk. Pasuk Tet. Very, very important. Explain it, ladies. Ki mikol tzara hetzilani. 
Beautiful. Because you saved me from all tzara. What's tzara? I guess troubles. And I was able to see my enemies. The simple explanation is, and I was able to see the downfall of my enemies. Now I have two pieces over here that I want you to consider. The first is the Benishai. And then I want to bring to your attention what the Hatam Sofer says. Two approaches on this Pasuk. The Benishai is explaining this Pasuk over here that what does it mean you saved me from my troubles and I was able to see the downfall of my enemies? It seems that there's a value to not only get saved, but to see the downfall. What is the advantage? So the Benish Chai says like this. If I could read it in his words. It's Benish Chai on Tehillim. Yesh lefa'amim ha'adam nitzol menatzara lefi sha'ah. Sometimes God will save a person, temporarily, but he has to pay the balance of his debt at a later date, it's not a full redemption. Now, how do you know if the redemption that you're receiving is full, is complete? There's a way, there's a litmus test that you could know that it's over. If God will merit you to see the downfall of your enemies, then you know you deserved it and you're free. But if you get saved and God does not allow you to see the downfall of your enemy, that shows you that you're guilty as well still. And therefore, you're going to have to revisit this problem at another time. And he brings an unbelievable proof from Yitziat Mitzrayim. You remember the night we left Mitzrayim on the 15th of Nisan, 2448 that year. On the night we left, so what did God say to us? Nobody could leave their house. You think this is the first quarantine? The first quarantine was in Mitzrayim. They didn't have to wear masks, I don't think, but they had to quarantine. It said in the Pasuk, Some found a connection that always before uh, redemption, there's a quarantine. So if that's the case, so we're, we had that already. So God willing, God willing, there'll be a redemption as well. And by the way, you don't have to be vaccinated to be redeemed. Don't let them tell you that Mashiach is not going to accept you if you don't have a, uh, a vaccine. You will be accepted uh, nonetheless. You might not be able to go to a restaurant in Brooklyn, but you'll be able to... Redemption applies to all people. Not, uh, there's no discrimination on that. Anyway, back to our story. So over here it says that why couldn't we... Why, why, why do we have to stay inside? Was there a plague? We were protecting ourselves. Why God said, you can't leave your house that night. Says the Ben Ishai. Because God didn't want to see it. God didn't want us to see the death of the firstborns. You know why? Because we weren't yet fully innocent. We still, was st we still had a little debt to pay. So although God was saving us on that night, we knew that since we can't see what's happening to our enemies, you remember, you're just coming to my mind now, he doesn't say this, remember with Lot's wife? And Lot, why couldn't they look behind to see what was happening? Because 
they should have died also. They were guilty. They only got saved on the coattails of Abraham. So therefore, God told them, make sure they don't look. They're really getting saved not on their merit. And of course, she turned around and she turned to a salt shaker. So she got punished. I'll give you another example. This is I heard from Chabaruch. It's worthy always to quote Chabaruch, the founding rabbi of our great synagogue. In his synagogue, to quote it. To quote him. This he taught us in 8th grade, Mag and David. This I heard from him in 1981. Usually when I tell people in the classroom, that's before you were born, but I guess not in this room over here. <laughs> Many of the people that they were born already by then. When I'm teaching in the schools, 1981 sounds like uh, you know, 100 years ago. Anyway, he said the following. You remember, there's a big mahloket uh, when Noah went on the teva. It says in the pasuk, Sohar ta'asela teva. That he has to make Sohar. What's Sohar? So there's two opinions what Sohar is. Rashi says either it's a window, so there's a window on the teva, or it was a, a shiny jewel that would light up so they have light. That's the different opinions. Is Sohar a window or is it a jewel? So Chabaru said, what's the point of argument over here? The rabbis must have a reason why he says window and he says it's a jewel. Both provide light. A window provides light and a jewel provides light. Why would they argue? What's the source of the argument? So he says it's based on something else. You remember we had another argument. Was Noah a tzaddik or not? Now of course he was a tzaddik, but some say that he was a tzaddik in his generation. Compared to the generation, Noah was a tzaddik. But put him in the generation of Abraham, not, not so much. And some say, no, if Noah was a tzaddik in his generation, certainly he would be a tzaddik in another generation. So there's a look at how to look at Noah. Some say, it says Noah found favor in the eyes of God, that he only got saved because he found favor, not because necessarily he deserved it. Now, if you believe that Noah was a real tzaddik and deserved to be saved, so that opinion says make a window so he can see the people dying. But if you hold that Noah did not get saved on his own right, then you can't have a window because you can't see what's going on outside. So how are they going to have light on the teva? Precious jewels. Understand the mahloket? The mahloket, if there was a window or not, depends if Noah had the merit to see the downfall. It's a deep interpretation. So then what happens? B'nai Yisrael were not able to leave their home that night, the B'nai Shai says. They were not able to witness Makat Bechol, although they heard it. They heard the shrieking from every, you know, every house of Egypt. They heard the, the wailing and the moaning and the, all the noise, but they didn't see it. Because they didn't deserve to see it yet. And now B'nai Yisrael finally leave. Paro's chasing them. And now the Pasuk says they cry out to God. And at that moment, they made their final teshuvah. God, what are you doing? Are there not, are there not cemeteries in Egypt that you brought us to die in the Midbar? They were scared. By they cried out to God. And at that moment, what happened? The sea split. And what does the pasuk say? Vayar Yisrael et Mitzrayim met al sefat And at that point, they saw the Egyptians drown. At that moment, says the Ben Yishai, they knew that it's over. 
that they're getting saved now and they're not going to have to revisit this exile. And that's what the Pasuk says in Tehidim. God, you save us from old Sarah, but how do I know that it's a final redemption? When I'm able to see my enemies. If I can see the downfall, then I know it's a real and conclusive salvation. That's the way Ben Ishai says. Hatam Sofer on this Pasuk has a little different twist. Okay, now we have to go back to Ulpan. We have to go back to Hebrew school to learn words. You know what? I'll show it to you with the Amidah. In the Amidah, which I know you ladies pray, at the end of the Amidah we say Elohai Nitzor. You know that section? Okay, good. So in some of the Sidurs, it says, that anybody that rises against me to do harm to me, God forbid, break their ideas, break their plans, you know, destroy their plots, and, you know, ruin their, uh, their ideas. And then some of the Sudurim uh, What is the word Yehalitsun mean? Yahalitsun also means to, to save us. Haletseni. Haletseni with a chet. To save us. So the Hatam Sufis says, what's the difference then between lehatsil with a hair and lehalets with a chet? They both mean to save. They both mean to extract from trouble. So he says like this. Yesh hatsala veyesh halatsa. Kemo haletseni Hashem me'adam ra. Chapter 140 in your Tehillim. Haletseni Hashem. Save me Hashem from Adam ra, from a bad person. Or you could say, Hatsileni me Adamra. What's the difference? You've saved me from death. Halatsa is much greater than Hatsala. In what sense? In Hatsala, the enemy is still there. You survived them, you escaped them, but he's there still. We were saved from him. You know, somebody's chasing you with a gun, God forbid, not you, somebody's chasing you. So you escaped him. He's still there, but he's still around, but you got saved. This is our text now. God, you saved us, but what? But I can still see my enemy. That means the enemy is still around. Understand how he's learning? Again, But since it's only 
Unfortunately, I could still see my enemy. He's still around. I just extricated myself from him, but he's still there. But then there's a higher level. That's the exile that we're in now. We've been saved from Mitzrayim. We've been saved from Babylonia. We've been saved from uh, Yavan. But guess what? We still see our enemy. The enemy's still here. No matter how many times we keep on getting saved, the enemy is still, we're just getting saved, but there's an enemy still in existence. We don't need a Hatzalah. We need a Halatzah. Velachin Nitztavinu. Unbelievable. Listen to this. After we left Mitzrayim, it's unbelievable, we left Mitzrayim, Mitzrayim Galtan. What, what? Were there still enemies in the world against us? Sure. <laughs> the second we left, Amalek came. <laughs> Egypt was a Hatzalah, but the enemies were still there. So that's why he says, we eat matzah on Pesach. Matzah, mem tzadi he. You know what matzah stands for? Mikol tzara hetzilanu. That's the story of Mitzrayim. Mikol tzara hetzilanu. You saved us from a tzara, but it's a tzara that's not a final tzara because the enemy is still there. However, there's going to come a time where it's going to be a final redemption. And at that point, what's going to happen? He says, unbelievable. What's greater, matzah or hametz? I like that you don't answer so fast, because I wouldn't know how to answer that question. That's a trick question. You answer the right answer. Don't answer anything. My gut would always said matzah must be greater, because we have a holiday of matzah. Hametz, we burn it. I was always think hametz is the enemy. They always told me when yeshiva, hametz is the etzadah. It's no good. And yeast. My wife tells me it's also no good because it's not healthy. But the point is, in Kabbalah, matzah, as we're learning here, is mikol tzarah etzilanu, it's temporary. But you know what hametz stands for? Says the Atam Sofer, hametz is with a het. Hametz, haletzeni mikol tzarah. Haletzeni means, save me and there'll be no more enemy. Understand the difference between the Hametz? Haletzeni mikol tzara. Not mikol tzara hetzilanu. Haletzeni mikol tzara. Which is a much higher level. However, the Torah tells us that we're not allowed to bring Hametz on the Mizbeah. The, the, the Bet HaMikdash is a... Uh, uh, what do they call it? It's uh, no leaven. It's uh, healthy. It's organic. They don't let any 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 hametz on the uh, on the mizbeach. 
Why? There's only one exception where we allow hametz. One day a year they allow hametz on the Mizbeach. On Shavuot, they bring a special korban, and with that special korban, it's brought with two loaves of bread. It's called Shteh Alechem. Says the Hatab Sofer, why on Shavuot? Which incidentally is the holiday right after Pesach. Because it's true. You know why Mitzrayim cannot be a final redemption? Because we didn't have the Torah yet. But once we get the Torah, and Klai Yisrael commits themselves to the study of the Torah, and the promotion of the Torah, and the learning of it, and the support of it, then already we turn Matzah into Hametz. Then it goes from Mikol Sarai Tzilanu, Tachaletzenu, Mikol and that happens on Shavuot. That happens already through the study of the Torah. And therefore we say over here that David HaMelech, who was thousands of years ago, can only mention Mikol Sarai Tzilani. But we're praying for that day of Matzah Hametz. That's why there's a holiday that we have called Pesach Sheni. What is Pesach Sheni? For all those that were not able to bring the Korban on the first Pesach, they have a makeup. Whoever couldn't go to Miami on Pesach, they sure they have to give them a makeup. They go 30 days later. No, what I mean is the Korban Pesach. But there's a big difference between the two holidays. On both holidays, you have to bring Korban Pesach. It's a makeup date, it's a rain date. The only difference is that on Pesach Sheni, you're bringing the Korban Pesach, you still have Hamas in the house. Whereas on Pesach, he's shown the first Pesach, you got to get rid of the Hamas. And the rabbis come along and they say, so in Sifri Yedeim, that the second Pesach Sheni is a very high level. It's Korban Pesach, the Hamas imo babayit. It's a Korban Pesach which represents redemption, and you still have Hamas in the house, which represents the highest level of redemption. Halitzini mikot zarah. Nonetheless, for our purposes, this chapter's lesson is, is that even though David HaMelech was afflicted by Zifim and all these turncoats that went against him, he put his faith in God, even though he couldn't pray with Kavanah. He was only able to pray in Refi. But nonetheless, God answers him and God supported him. And then he says, Dear God, He saved me from all my, my troubles. Like the Hatam Sofer says, that although I'm still going to be able to see my enemies, one day Matzah will turn into Hametz, and that only comes to the rigorous study of Tamil Torah. Hence, on Shavuot, the Qurban is Qurban of Hametz. Baruch Adonai Amen. Amen.